I will not make any deals with you. I have resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we talk about The Prisoner on John Ross. As I didn't talk to you about this beforehand, I actually thought about using a quote from Arrow to start the show with <laughs> and then transitioning into that. But I, I didn't bring it up to you and I thought it would have been funnier, but I decided not to do it for our listeners and to be professional. Instead, I would reference it as a joke and I may do it two more times because I hear if you do things in threes, they're funny. Right. If you just keep hammering the joke home, eventually the humor comes out of it. And even if you tell the joke, I think now that joke's up to 12 times, it should be funny again now. <laughs> but obviously, we're not talking about Arrow at the <clears throat> moment. Um, we we decided uh, – there's a couple of reasons, one of which is just I set up thinking, Chris, let's do that, um, which is most of how our podcast works. But um, Chris actually had a really good point, which I know shocked me too, is that given that it's been about a month since we've recorded – Picking something that we're both really excited about that doesn't really fit anywhere else to kind of ease back into things seemed like a smarter move. And I, and I reluctantly, grudgingly agreed that perhaps maybe doing something that we would both have a lot of fun with uh, instead of, I mean, I'll, I'll have fun with Arrow too, but that requires like research and watching and, and, and thinking about things. Whereas this is, I the prison's burned into my brain, man. I mean, I've watched <laughs> it so many times. <laughs> well, also for the Arrow, that puts us back on track and then we're, in that sort of WB slash Arrowverse throughout the entire course of the thing. And I think to do that properly, we need to be back in a good rhythm for it. Right. While The Prisoner is amazing, weird, yes. uh, ahead of its time, and something that if we riff on and even if we mess up, who cares because it's The Prisoner and next episode, it'll be different. But right. the same. And, <laughs> which is, that, I definitely want to talk about today, but... um. It kind of started uh, uh, actually because uh, weirdly enough, I was, I was watching um, Glass Onion on Netflix, which I do want to talk about at some point on the podcast. Uh, well, you've got to but, finish the first one first, by the way. Yeah, it's true. I do have to get back and watch them. Um, it's on Hulu, I think, right now for anyone that wants to watch. Uh, oh, it is. I, I tried to find out. it, and I could maybe, uh, maybe I'll go back and double check. Maybe maybe my Google food failed me. Uh, but uh, without spoiling anything, there is a moment in the movie where the movie shows you something and then convinces you you didn't see it. And then tells you you actually saw it. And it reminded me of The Prisoner. And that's why I mentioned to Chris. I was like, you know, it, it, this definitely reminds me of how The Prisoner would just do stuff and then pretend like it never happened. Uh, and, and then Chris like, we should talk about The Prisoner. And that's how I got, got to hear it. Because you're right. The Prisoner is in some ways so ahead of its time and in some ways is just – has so many problems and weirdness and it's like hard to tell what's a mistake and what's intentional. And it, it really ends up putting it into kind of its own weird space. It's not quite an espionage thing. It's not quite psychological thriller. It's not quite surrealism. It, it, it's, it's just really hard to, to put a genre on, frankly. Well, it's, it is most certainly science fiction. Yes. It's definitely science fiction, but almost by accident, you know, <laughs> Um, because a lot of the science fiction 
comes from where spy fiction was going in the late 60s. The the Avengers certainly was moving more into science fiction. The Avengers, the British Avengers, not the comic book Avengers, um, was moving oh, so more into science Excalibur. fiction. Oh, God damn it, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Steed and yeah, Emma so folks, it, it's, it's been like a month, so we, we've, we've missed some of the bantering. It's not the same when you banter uh, via Discord as it is in person, because I don't get to see Eddie's face <laughs> drop go why did he say that i was making sense i was on track oh yeah that's what chris does right because chris even told me before we started recording eddie you're the person has to keep things on track and then intentionally cuts me off at the knees as i'm trying to keep things on track (laughs) i am controlled chaos you know that it'll happen i will happen in this time frame but you're not sure when it will happen i I completely disagree with your assessment control i think is too strong of a turn (laughs) Loosely confined chaos. Loosely Sorry, confined chaos. Um, uh, but uh, since you're you kind of suggested this, I mean, I'm, how, do, how much do you know about how the prisoner was made and kind of the story behind it? So I first watched the prisoner. I want to say when I was eight, and I watched it all the way through. Wow! Because left alone as a child in Alabama, my best friend was my television set. What can I say? I was a big reader. I was a TV watcher. Uh, Outside was for those weird people that enjoyed sunlight. Yeah, no. And so then I didn't know a lot about it, and it was weird, and it something I liked, but I didn't know why I liked it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since then, I've watched a couple times, and I've picked up snippets about what happened. Like I know, for instance, Patrick McGowan. The only reason he got to make this show is because he was so well known and famous from his time on Danger Man. Yep. Which, funnily enough, he was also originally picked to be James Bond, and he was like, I don't want to be Bond. It is, there's too much sex involved. Yes. And he turned down violence. Uh, Twice, I think he turned down being Bond. So, Danger Man was like this great show, which I watched the first episode of Danger Man in preparation for this because we weren't going to watch Danger Man. I actually did watch watch Danger Man as well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) So, stay tuned, folks. Next week, we're going to do Danger Man. No, man, there's Which, like 89 episodes of Danger Man. That's a lot of Danger Man to get through. But there's only, I want to say, like three seasons. Mind you, they had season one that then got canceled to come back because their um, James Bond made a resurgence in the interest of it. And so they sort of revamped the show for like seasons two and three, and it became a longer series. They like He was no longer working, I think, for NATO, but then still was working for the British people. And because originally he was... Um, um, it's a danger man show now. Um, <laughs> he worked for NATO and lived, I want to say, in D.C. And so yes, he traveled he was, around the world to do things. He was actually American in the first season. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that was swept to the carpet for seasons two and three when he got picked up. Right. Uh, by and the I'm, I'm actually I'm glad you brought up danger man because I was going to bring it up because there's been a long running theory that the prisoner is actually John Drake from Danger Man. Because Patrick McGowan plays it. Um, McGowan vociferously denies this, and there's evidence kind of in both directions. But uh, uh, one of the reasons why I love the prisoner is kind of the same reason why I love things like Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Who is that the canon is so messy, you can kind of fit anything into it. So, yeah, both Danger Man and the prisoner are, are messy, to be fair. Uh, so, so, like I said, I mean, like in season two, it basically gets rebooted, uh, and it's so bizarre that, um, uh, when the prisoner was was greenlit, they actually had two episodes of uh, Danger Man. They never aired. They just never got on to airing them. 
and they, they didn't want it doesn't take off their to avoid confusion. When the prisoner ran long, they actually aired those episodes as prisoner episodes to kind of fill the gaps, and people kind of didn't really realize at, at all the time. Uh, they just assumed, oh, this is a flashback to his time when he was working in you know uh, British intelligence. So that kind of reinforced the Drake is the prisoner dichotomy, um, but it also shows just how bizarre this show is that a completely different show could run in its slot and people are going this might be the same thing i'm not sure well i think part of that also so i guess this is probably one of the I'm not gonna say the few times but one of the times that we both know so much about the show <laughs> that uh we're both leads on it just to talk about it it's, <laughs> it's awesome um but i think one of the reasons that could have been is because originally patrick McGowan had an idea for seven episodes and they asked yes. i want to say for 20 or 22 and they got out to be 17 but they uh, they did a lot of fluffing, and you can tell the fluff episodes. Right, because um, uh, CBS is part of the reason why Danger Man came back, because it ended up being super popular in America when it was run as Secret Agent. And in fact, um, that show is where we get the song Secret Agent Man, which is kind of an iconic piece of 60s sci-fi music. Uh, sci-fi music, sorry. Um, and so America's like, no, we, we really want more Patrick Bingham and stuff for the U.S. and to sell it in the U.S. in 26 episodes. And uh, uh, you're right, Patrick Moon was like, I want to do seven, you know, because six to eight was kind of getting to be more traditional at that point. Um, and so they made this weird 17 episode compromise, which is is a choice that happened. <laughs> um, so well, I like, like I've said, I think before on the podcast, I like the British model of having a six to eight episode season. So they're tight and there feels like there's a constant progression movement going on throughout the show. Like that is great and something I wish that American television would adopt and we could just have six to eight episode seasons of lots of different shows, which would then allow, allow you to create untold number of weird things, conventional things, and give so many people an opportunity to tell stories and at the same time make the stories you're telling stronger. Completely agree. And, and, and in fact, I remember we talked about this during um, our Netiverse discussion and the fact that all of them felt just about two episodes too long. If they had gone with an eight episode model for each season, I think all of those seasons would have been a lot tighter, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess a little bit more about the actual sort of production of The Prisoner. Do you... Did you know how they came up with Rover? No, I actually don't know this. Uh, originally they wanted to be some sort of, I want to say mechanical like cart that would cruise around and do things. But when it got one of the, well, one of the stories is when it went into water, it sank. So they needed to come up with something <laughs> to replace it. So that's where they got the, the weather balloon from, which I think the weather balloon works so much better yeah. than anything else. Cause it adds that sort of creepy blob S factor for fans of the blob from back in the day. Or mm -hmm. if you're a mythos fan, a little bit like a Shoggoth, just saying, <laughs> Yes. And, and honestly, Rover is a great kind of touchstone for the prisoner as a whole because it is – the analogy I made recently with a friend of mine is that the prisoner was kind of the show of like, – like the show Lost but in the 60s in the sense that it was a big budget show that really had no idea where it was going. And it was building up to an ending that could not possibly deliver and – whether your opinions are lost or are not, the point is that both shows have controversial endings, let's say. But both of them also put a lot of money into very specific parts of the show and then heavily reused them. So, like, uh, it's actually 
pretty lavish by 67 BBC standards, but also because they more or less use one outdoor set for a lot of it. Um, they recycle indoor sets a lot. And then where to cut corners are things like Rover, where it's like, okay, now we're out of money and we need to have this big thing. So let's just do something just out of nowhere. It, it, it's, it's very much of the school of 60s Doctor Who, of like, I don't know, weather balloon, that looks right. But it really does because the fact that it's juxtaposing this really elaborate place in Wales and these really ornate sets with kind of rubbish special effects adds to the weird surreal nature and the, the, the constant push and pull they have of trying to make the show work gives it a kind of, of energy and desperation that really shows through on, on the screen. So one of the things they did to sort of cut costs is a lot of the extras that you see were locals that they hired at. Oh, like really? I didn't know that. Like, <laughs> like a ridiculously low salary and they would come on. And for a lot of the number twos, they, it was so expensive to fly people out to the island that the number twos were actually sort of filmed uh, walking into something and they did some of their stuff separately than number six. To help yeah, cut there's also along the way. If you if you watch, there's actually quite a few episodes where um, you only see number two in like their office or on sets, which means they can do all that filming in London. And then all the outdoor stuff, you, you have somebody talking through grills or phones or whatnot to kind of avoid that that filming. Yeah. Uh, and so the other funny thing about some of the casting thing is, is that Patrick Migo, and this goes back to his thing about I won't be Bond because there's no sex. And he adamantly stated that he didn't want any sort of sex or anything like that in the prisoner. And he wouldn't usually wouldn't touch female leads or anything in the show. When you see him put his arm around um, a female or female presenting character, it's because it's his daughter on set in a wig. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And like one of the things I think if you, even in the second episode, when we get there, the chums of big Ben, when you see he puts his arm around number eight, if you look, number eight is significantly shorter when his arms are around her than when she is, when she's walking around. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. McGowan is a weird, weird cat. No, no denying that. Yeah. Um, any other tidbits that you want to tell people about the show before we start getting into it? Um, uh, I want to, I want to address one thing that's, particular to the prisoner and a few other shows that we, I don't think we've run into yet which is the order we're going with is basically the order presented online. It, it, yeah, we, we're, we both used uh, uh, Prime Video to watch this, and this is the order that's presented. Um, it sucks <laughs> because there is no definitive episode order. Um, there, uh, Even the DVDs that came out from A&E, the episode order they came up with were actually created by the fan club and even that's kind of in debate like i have a personal watch order for this show now um so i mean the order we're presenting these things in are just going to be what's on the website so if you go to there that's probably the one you're going to see and, and i think most streaming sites use this order just because that's the the quote-unquote official broadcast order uh but i'm going to call out throughout this i'm sure we'll both call out kind of like this doesn't make sense because it was probably aired in, in a weird order and the prisoner's one of those shows where you don't entirely realize how much of it is, oh, the episode went up early because that was the one they had in the can and needed to film something that week or show something on TV that week. 
and how much was intentionally intending to disorient the audience. So it actually kind of works okay, no matter which order you're watching him. But certainly there are some things where in this order, for example, I don't think we covered these episodes, but um, one number two talks about it's being his last chance. And then several episodes later, you see that same number two apparently showing up for the first time. Um, and so it's like, it's pretty obvious those are meant to go in a different order. But again, because this show is so weird, it almost kind of works. So um, it's not quite on the level of how Disney Plus released the X-Men cartoon of Bad Order. Uh, but certainly there's going to see some, we're going to see some continuity jumps as we go through these episodes. Cool. All right. Let's start with season one, episode one arrival. So we start off with the unnamed agent operative. You're never really sure what his exact occupation is, uh, cruising along the, the streets in his Lotus. And he comes up to the toll to the toll to pay, which was funny that he could have driven under the toll if he wanted to, but he makes an exerted effort to stop to pay the toll yes. before he goes in and quits his, sorry, before he resigns in the way that I've always wanted to resign from a job. And then slamming, slamming the letter on the ground, pounding on a desk. (laughs) But like, if you look at even the things on it, it says like to be delivered by hand for your eyes only on the thing. He slams onto the desk and goes, resign. Um, (laughs) Then he goes home and you have this black hearse sort of falling the whole, whole way home, which then makes me question about what his real occupation is, because if he was a spy, he would have noticed a tail, but I digress. Um, (laughs) And he gets home, they knock him out, and he wakes up sometimes later in this unusual place that will be known as a village. And he tries to find out where he is. He talks to different people on the island and gets almost no useful answers. And he gets summoned to go meet the management of the island. And he gets his first encounter with number two that they all they want to know from him simply is, why did you resign? Mm-hmm. Which he refuses to tell anyone. And through the rest, of course, the episode, he explores the island, giving us a chance to like view different parts of it. And he encounters an old friend of his called Cobb, who says he's having a rather bad time and then leaps out the window committing suicide. And shocked by that, uh, he attends a funeral. He meets a woman that might have been in a relationship with Cobb and they hatch sort of a plan to escape. Before this, he tried to escape himself, but was captured by Rover the Shoggoth, the weather balloon, the horror that is. And at the end, he does manage to get in a helicopter and tries to escape and flies around, but they bring him back. And you see that Cobb is, in fact, working for the island and asks him very nicely to treat the woman kindly because she might have really had affection for him. And Mm -hmm. you have number six, is they're calling him because they don't use names, trapped still in the village. Absolutely. And uh, it's... We've talked before about how a good pilot can really set a tone for a show, and this is mildly hyperbolically one of the best pilots, I think, out there, because you get everything you know about the show in this slightly over one hour episode, uh, mm-hmm. and everything it brings up will be, I won't say resolved, uh, but certainly will be touched on throughout the course of the show. Um, it has things like... The number, the person's number two actually changes in the course of the episode. The only time it happens in an episode, but it sets you up for the expectation that number two will be different each time. So that's a really clever bit of things. And if you look at the episodes, almost kind of two episodes in one. The first episode is kind of just him getting there and talking to the first number two and the, the resolution of that arc being, I'm not going to answer this question, I'm not going to give in, which sets up the overall question of the show. 
um, you know, that he's that refuses to accept him being number six. And then the second one is his first escape attempt uh, under a different number two. Uh, so, um, and you also get to see the village, which is the other big character in the show. Uh, the village is actually uh, a, a small village in Wales, I believe. Um, but it's kind in, of... in real life, in real life, it's a small village in Wales. Right. Wait, let's, yeah. let's. Yeah, yeah. Where the village is in in the show is is definitely a subject to debate. And much like who controls the village, is it technically as he would say, our side or their side? He never, he doesn't know. Right. Uh, but there's one of the bits I love about the prisoner is how it kind of implies a world through negative space. Uh, like the fact that the leader of the village is number two and everyone has a number implies the existence of a number one, which is only adequately addressed at the end of the show and adequately, I put kind of air quotes there. <laughs> um, but you know, there's a question of who is number one and it's never really one of but Everyone in the village recognizes number two is their leader, even though number two changes constantly. Number two is seen reporting occasionally to uh, some in a higher authority. Uh, but again, it's never said the person you're reporting to is number one. N- number six asks that question, but nobody in the village ever says there is number one or this person is number one. It, 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 and there's a lot of times where he asks a question and someone in the village says something different. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of, you're getting character work while you're also exploring the environment, which is just really good structure. And then there's also uh, environmental things. Like you said, that whole opening you talked about, there's no, there, there's audio, but there's no spoken dialogue. It's all told visually. Beautiful. Um, wh- uh, when uh, er- there's an early scene where he goes, goes into the shop to try to get a map. And a great moment where he's, I want a map of the area. And they keep giving him maps of the village. He's like, I want a larger map. And it's, okay, here's a bigger map of the same village. And he's like, no, I want a map of a larger area. And, and those kinds of almost deliberate misunderstandings, again, really sets a tone. But in the background, you're seeing there's posters like uh, questions are a prison for the mind. Or, or questions are a burden, answers are a prison. Uh, and stuff like that. Um and then there's also just weird moments like when he's going through and uh, the, the hospital and there's someone just babbling and watching a water spout. And <laughs> it's never explained. It just, it just The show just moves on. So you, it, it invites a lot of speculation and trying to understand how this world works that is frankly mind-blowing for 67. Yeah, and much like how you were touching on when he first leaves his new home, sorry, when he was first knocked out and he wakes up, he wakes up in a place that looks exactly like the apartment he just left. Mm -hmm. So that helps sort of like reinforce the weirdness of the situation. And then even when he leaves, he gets in a taxi and asks to leave and they say, I'm just a local. And he gets still driven around everywhere else and they ask for work units. And he sort of has that weird moment where I don't have any work units and they say, I'll get you next time. And so like touches like that are very nice coupled with something that is now a, a problematic symbol that we need to touch on is when they mm. constantly say, uh, I'll be seeing you. Yeah. That symbol is now been appropriated by white nationalists and is a, right. uh, yeah. Yeah. The, 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 so. the, the, the okay symbol. Um, but they put it over the eye. Um, and, uh, 
the salute is secondary to the phrase to be seeing you um, because it's, 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 it's a very kind of colloquial, I'll see you later, but also really establishes a tone of series, which is you're always under surveillance. Mm-hmm. Um, so the salute aside, little bits like that, um, they'll, they'll, they'll take these odd little things and then just repeat them and repeat them and repeat them. And you start to realize there's another layer there. And sometimes there's not, and sometimes there's multiple layers, but the show never quite defines which is which. Um, and it's, it's, it ends up making the whole show feel like you're constantly trying to catch up with, and we think you're ahead and you're not, uh, and it does it better than a lot of shows that purport to be mysteries, uh, <laughs> because um, the show doesn't really bother to explain. It just goes, this is weird, and you have to accept it. And sometimes it means something, and sometimes it doesn't, and we'll never tell you which. Mm-hmm. And for the Be Seeing You, it's a, I think it's such an amazing touch because everyone does it as sort of like their general greeting. So it's constantly reinforced everywhere you go and you'll even see that number six starts doing it himself to sort of like fit in and act like he's part of everyone. So it's a nice, it's not even subtle. It is like a nice hammer (laughs) on the head with so many subtle undertones associated with it. And one of the, I was just going to say that, and since everyone has a number, you're not sure if the numbers are important or not because our, our protagonist is number six, and he's answering to number two, so it feels like he should be an important character for this show, but why would you have given someone just to your island such an important number, which right. may touch on like his ego, which could have been part of the reason why he's number six. Yeah. Uh, but and I, and I just want to touch back, though, on your comment about um, subtle versus overt, and, and it's one of the reasons why I think this show is actually really a fantastic particularly for its time capsule of moment because in 67 you know color had just come to television that's how far back we're talking about here this being color show was one of its selling points at the time um so television really kind of had to make sure the audience is following along and for a show like this that's not a desirable state but if you're watching the show just as a here is today's conceit. Here's how we're going, how, how six resolves that. And then here's the payoff. The plots are super clear every single time. You're never lost as to what's actually happening in terms of six's plots at any point in the rival. It's it, the, the action is very clear moment to moment. Why it's happening and the context of why it's happening and the subtext under it is never clear. And that is an incredibly tricky balance to hit. Yeah. Um, so, and to talk on how clear the plots are, when you're watching it, you're watching it less for the plot. You're watching it more for almost the spectacle of it yes. and trying to unravel the real reason why he won't tell them why he just resigned whenever <laughs> he gets a chance to. And like, would it be easier? Will they let him go? Mm-hmm. And one of the other interesting touchstones though for the island is for, they constantly are sending in um, attractive women to sort of like crack him is the best way to put it. And it starts in this episode with his maid Mm -hmm. who says like, they'll let me go. If you tell me like why you didn't do this and he refuses to do it. He, he has none of it, Yes, but you get a weird little snippet from her almost as like an off cuff line that like, well, I was born on the Island. Oh, Mm -hmm. I was born in the village, which then adds in, if that's true, 
this has been going on for at least, we'll say she was 25, right? at least 26, 27 years, mm-hmm. which then of itself is staggering when you add that into like all the other complexities of what's transpired here. Yeah. And uh, again, this is 67. So the idea that this may have been running since World War II is not unfeasible. Uh, but again, it's uh, a particularly Cold War moments of the all sides are kind of acting the same way. So while it is important to Six to know who's running the islands, it also doesn't matter for the show. Uh, because obviously if uh, uh, British intelligence was running the island, that would seem to matter for Six based on the fact he's clearly based in London. Uh, but beyond that, uh, character nationality very rarely matters in the show. Uh, again, in Arrival, um, a, an Asian woman uh, picks him up in the cab and she talks in French. And when he asks her why she says French, she says, well, it's very cosmopolitan. And never really actually answers the question while kind of answering the question. Uh, so is she French? Is she you know, English? Is she from a different country besides those two? We don't know. Uh, and that's the tone for other people on the islands. Naturally, most of them sound uh, British or Welsh because that's the casting pool we're dealing with. Uh, but it sets up a, a certain expectation that it could be any side that is actually running the islands. And that kind of post-nationalist espionage drama is staggeringly advanced for 67. Considering even in the 80s, we're still going, oh, America, good, Russia, bad, in terms of our geopolitics for espionage. Here in 67, it's like, yeah, that kind of really doesn't matter. Uh, is decades ahead of where it was. Uh, anything else about Arrival? Um, I don't think so. Uh, uh, I, I think, again, I just want to reiterate, uh, Arrival is a really good pilot episode. Every time I watch it, I, I learn something new, either about the show or about just writing in general. Uh, there's always little moments that it, it, it it's one of the few shows that I will happily rewatch because there's always something new to figure out. Awesome. Then we're going to move on to the, the chimes of big Ben, which I think this was supposed to originally been around episode four because the original episode two, I think was dance of the dead. And they were like, this is way too weird to show people right away. (laughs) Uh, All right. So we start with number two, having number six in his office and they're watching number eight, the new number eight wake up. Mm. And through the course of the episode, early episode, she attempts to commit suicide in multiple ways because she doesn't want to be trapped there. And mm. eventually, number six asks number two to allow him to take take her in to sort of help her get acclimatized to the island. And mm. in doing so, he strikes a deal that he will start to participate in island activities and there is an art show going on. Mm-hmm. And so his contribution to the art show is he makes a uh, an abstract object to to present to to show that he's there and he wins which the abstract object is a boat there's no other way to put it obviously a boat (laughs) boat. uh and the the what when he wins he gives all of his like equivalent prize prize tokens uh working i think to the one of the runner-ups who made this immaculately beautiful painting of number two Mm-hmm. Which this number two is one of my favorites because he has yes. incredible lines like 
somehow even putting on his dressing gowns an act of defiance. <laughs> like, beautiful. So good. And so anyway, in the end, uh, number eight and number six team up together. They escape the island on the boat. Number eight lets him know that she has an accomplice somewhere who knows where the island is that runs off Rover when it comes after them. They arrive. The accomplice for number eight gives number six his watch to help him. And they like board a ship and they're traveling to see Big Ben because this whole time she's been asking to see Big Bill and she flirts with him and asks if he has a wife and all these other things. And he has none of it. because (laughs) That is how number six is. And they arrive. They believe in London through a very packaged and bungled around shipping crate. And in the office, they ask him again. So why did you, uh, where, where have you been? What's been going on? And he says, they wanted to know why I resigned. And he makes a deal that if he tells them why I resigned, they'll take care of number eight because she is apparently a, a Russian operative mm-hmm. who was incredibly talented and everything else. And right before he gets ready to tell them why he resigned, he hears uh, Big Ben going off, looks at the watch he was given and says, aha. Uh, this watch is like one hour fast. Big Ben chimed in, so this is not it. I'm still on. I'm still in the village, and he walks out into the village to see that it's all been a massive ploy. And number eight sort of waves at him, and he just sort of walks off into the distance as the episode ends. I mean, you have to love an episode where you you figure out everything is a ruse because of time zones. Yes, it's amazing. Um, but no, I, I love this episode because you're right. Um, uh, this is one of the few number twos that actually come back from multiple episodes and you see why, because he's fantastic in this episode. Um, uh, but again, the economy of world building and the statements it makes about sixties era cold war is fascinating because like you mentioned, uh, number eight, um, when they first kind of meet, uh, he's like, are you Russian? Do your accent? And she's Lithuanian and he goes, same difference. And she goes, we don't think so. And that short exchange tells you so much. And it's just, it's every time I hear that, it's like, Oh, that's such a beautifully shitty moment of like, listen here, you imperialist English asshole. Don't lump us all together that you would never have seen in 67 television. Um, Again, watching danger, man. It's like they were not above really broad strokes. So having something nuanced like that was, was really, really cool. Um, but again, sometimes the show is so obvious that it invites questions that makes you wonder how, why it's being obvious. Like, like we talked about, he goes into the woods, he carves a wooden sculpture and it's basically the hull of a boat with the bottom as a separate piece and then a cross piece. And it's like, it's obviously a boat and he presents it as an abstract art piece. And every other art piece has a picture of, of number two on it. And it's kind of the big thing is like they're trying to figure out where number two fits into this art piece. And the whole time it's like, how did they not see that this is a boat? It's like, (laughs) I see this as a boat. I, as the viewer, it's very clear to me as the viewer, this is a boat because as the viewer, I should be really, again, very clear on how the plot's progressing. But then it finds question of like, do they know it's a boat and are afraid to say anything do they not realize the boat because they've never even thought about escape for so long? Uh, uh, it, it actually ends up working really well because the whole the original premise of, well, the character would be dumb for the plot to progress because of the layers we're seeing in this show, you can start to fill in the gaps of like, well, maybe there's, they just can't say it as a boat. You know, maybe some people have never seen a boat. 
if they've lived in the village eternal life. There's a stone boat, but that's a hunk of stone. This is wood. Obviously, wood can't float. I don't know. I mean, it's there. There are lots of questions that come up, which probably in the writing stage was just the audience needs to know it's about. Oh, like this. This episode is one of my favorites because it touches on everything that you've just said. It mm. also cast a age appropriate actress to try to act as a love interest for him. Yes. And it cast her as an incredibly competent, if not more skilled operative than what he is. And mm. like in the sixties, that dynamic is astounding. Cause even yeah. if you go and you think about Dr. Who at the time, they had Liz as Pertwee's companion and they quickly got rid of Liz because they thought Liz was too smart. <laughs> like we need someone for the doctor to explain things to. And she tricks him. She does like unbelievably much like Holmes had the woman. She tricks six into actually believing her and what she's trying to do so much so that he risked everything to like go and escape with her. And he sort of gets soft on her towards even the end of the episode, even though he resists her, her many offers to do things. This is one of the episodes where they're actually the writer put in, they wanted to have an explicit love scene and mm-hmm. they're supposed to be in one big box. And Patrick McGowan said, Nope, yes. we have separate single bed boxes <laughs> and there's no love scene. And I mean, on the one hand, obviously you can see, see decisions of like, okay, he's a devout Roman Catholic and family man and has a very strong opinions about what children should be able to see on television. But it ends up making a really interesting dynamic because you see this woman trying to find a romantic angle in six and just not finding it. So the conversations turn into like she's obviously flirting with him and trying to make him think she's falling in love with him. And he looks just kind of annoyed by the whole prospect, (laughs) which I actually kind of love because you don't see that dynamic. But it doesn't change the fact that he still starts to care about her. It's like, oh, God, this woman's Mm -hmm. flirting with me. But he stopped thinking. I'm suspicious of her. It's now more like, okay, fine. I need to take care of her or I'm just, she, you know, I'm annoyed by her, but she's helping me out. But the thing is that his brain is off of this person is against me because he's very suspicious to start. So it still works for the plot. And it's, uh, there's obviously bits and pieces where the actors are kind of maybe, well, at least uh, uh, the actor for eight is trying to struggle with dialogue that was meant to go a certain direction that foreseen no longer exists. But they both do a really good job of selling this complicated relationship. And you're right. Number eight is she's an Olympic swimmer. Um, she is clearly highly placed in her in Lithuanian uh, intelligence. Uh, and the reason why she went to the village is very clear. She saw plans that locate where the village is. It turns out to be bunk. But the point <laughs> is, is that it makes more sense that she's in the village than number six. It's like if yes. there was a place where he takes spies because they know too much, she is a ideal candidate for that kind of prisoner. And then it goes back sort of reinforcing that the number has a sort of hierarchy associated with it. And that's why she's a number eight. And mm-hmm. even in her initial waking up scene, it goes back to mirror his scene of waking up because the apartment she wakes up in, they state looks like her apartment that she was right. originally in. So they're constantly reinforcing that thing that we have so much power. We can mirror your environment to give you sort of a, a weird hazy sort of, I'm, I guess I'm home to step outside to be shattered by the reality that you're somewhere completely different. Yep. Like that is unbelievable power and a, almost a key in different spy and espionage fiction. Right. And, and, and 
honestly, it, it's actually a, a bit frustrating. This is the second episode because it works better if you put a couple episodes in the middle there. Like I said, the Dance of the Dead actually does work better as second episode um, because Six is acclimated very quickly to this and to the point where he's now seeing other people go through the same process he did. It makes more sense if he spent a little more time in the village to kind of sell that moment more. Uh, but outside of that, you're right. Um, we're, we're now getting new world building, which is num- this wasn't all made just for number six's benefit. Although at the end of the episode then questions that, but it sets yeah. up the idea that other people go through a similar process. And sometimes number six is going to be a side character, somebody else's story. And that actually, other episodes do then actually take that idea that number six is, has power of a sort, uh, his power of rebellion but sometimes he's not actually the motivator for story. He's just present for somebody else's trials with the village. So while it's frustrating from continuity perspective to have this here, it is good to set up that the title of the show is The Prisoner. The character follows number six, who is the prisoner. But the prisoner in each episode may not necessarily be number six every time. True. So I agree mostly with you but i guess a slight thing for me is why it worked still works so well is that they make a specific point to say like uh it's been months at one point early on when he's talking to number two sure so given that he's been there for months he is a we'll be generous and say spy uh (laughs) i'm still bothered by that tail a hearse is literally falling me back (laughs) to my apartment i walked that I'll walk directly in. I will not look behind me. I will not have pre-packed my bag. I have done nothing but resigned. Um, so Patrick McGowan, if you've watched this, likes to hit the last word with some ex- extra effort. And I feel inclined to replicate that because it brings me joy. Not Eddie, but me. Um, <laughs> it is Shatner-esque, yes. <laughs> so it is that couple months he's been there sort of works. Now the issue becomes when we watch later episodes and he's new again it's like he's been there two days it's like right what that's where my big sort of issue right um uh, but again um there are are also episodes that we didn't cover um uh where his mind's rewritten so i mean again it it, it still all kind of works it's nothing in here is catastrophically these cannot coexist shuffling around makes them exist better together um but uh, like I said, Dance of Day, which we didn't cover, um, it kind of hinges on him being relatively new. Uh, but if his mind had been wiped and he's a rememberer coming back there, that perfectly works. Um, so what is real and what isn't, this episode does a good job of establishing that as a concept. Because uh, Arrival certainly starts to play with that, but the actual everything that actually happens in Arrival is reasonably mundane. End of the day, uh, he was tricked into performing an operation, and the operation turned out to actually then be completely in control. But his state of mind was never actually adequately assaulted. In this, he was made to believe that he made it back and turned out to not be true. Uh, who he thought he was connecting with and the situation that I was in was, was, was objectively not true at a much more complicated level than Arrival. Uh, and then uh, uh, the next episode after this, um, we'll talk about uh, uh, his sense of reality becomes even more directly assaulted. So uh, all of these things can be explained away if you want to, in any order you want to. But again, uh, uh, that's why there's no consistent order because also 
on some level, to put these in a certain order requires you to say, this thing is objectively true and this thing is objectively false in order to make the episode order work. And everyone's going to have different opinions on that, so no one's going to satisfy everyone. Again, like the Sherlock Holmes stories, there are some consistencies that just cannot be reconciled. At some point, I'm going to say Watson is lying or Watson screwed up in order to make any kind of continuity work. Do you have any last thoughts on the chimes of Big Ben? Uh, no, I, I just, uh, I again, I, I love the number two in this. I, I can't kind of state that enough. He, he he's, he's so bombastic in a way that really sells the idea that he's this power mad controller of a strange village in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, all right. So we'll move on to many happy returns. Uh, in this one, you have number six waking up. His power doesn't work. The water doesn't work. And when he looks out, the village is completely empty. Mm-hmm. And so he wanders around for a little bit and then he devises a plan to escape and you go in and you see the reason why construction of the boat was so important in the second episode, because he builds a raft in next to no time yes. by himself to get on it. And the one thing that does happen before he leaves, like really the only other noise because the episode's almost completely silent. There's no speaking. There's background noise. And there is a big black cat that breaks a teacup on the table. Mm-hmm as he sets off and he is on that raft with his beans in a, like a very <laughs> thick sweater and a blanket for a sail for weeks. Yes. Just going and going until he eventually is encountered by, we'll call them. I think they're actual gun runners who yeah. catch him after he's passed out. They try to toss him off his raft. They steal his very meager supply of beans and set off, which you have number six sneaking onto the ship. There's a bit of an action scene where he takes the ship and he starts going towards land. They escape because he tied them up together in the same room with non-Boy Scout legal knots. If you use a Boy Scout <laughs> knot, they've still been tied. And they draw a gun. And so he does the most amazing jump I've ever seen, like Kirk-esque <laughs> into the water. Yes. And he swims, gets to land. He encounters some campers is what we will call them. Mm-hmm. and they feed him. They point him towards direction. He avoids the police because he thinks the police are after him. He makes it to his old home only to find there's a maid there. There's a mistress now in charge of the house who takes a shine to him. She lets him in. He talks about his car that he built it with his own two hands. And <laughs> she lets him use a suit, tells him this has been her home for a while. And he goes into the office. And you get the same iconic scene that starts the show, except with a little bit of a redone. He doesn't have his, he's not as dressed neatly anymore, but he goes in the Lotus shows up. There's a different person in charge. He has meetings. There's a friend of his who acknowledges him. They run up a mission to go and find the Island. One of the things that you really need to notice for this episode though, is that the pilots get shift, get switched with potentially a milkman who comes out in a pilot helmet and everything else. You can't mm-hmm. see his face. And he's flying over and he jettisons number six back onto the island and he does a symbol of I'll be seeing you as he leaves. Mm-hmm. And six crashes back onto the island. I'm oh, sorry, I keep saying island, onto the village. Because mm-hmm. you have me thinking about loss now. Uh crashes right. back into the <laughs> village to go back to his home and the wa- the water pops on, the lights come on, you hear the people outside, and number two walks in with a birthday cake, who is a woman from his own home. 
in London and says many happy returns. And he's yes. trapped back in the village. Yes. And the reason this episode is so amazing is not like the amazing opening, but it was supposed to have been the um, episode 13, like sort of the season finale. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have all these built up. He gets to escape again, like really escape, make contact with friends, do all these things, but is trapped back. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I don't want to undercut the opening because I mean, you're right. It is a solid half hour in the episode before you hear a word of English. Uh, and it's all visual storytelling. Um, uh, Patrick McGowan is an interesting kind of actor. Cause again, um, you can see he has stage training. Uh, you can see this is a slightly older version of television. He's not a face actor. He's not a character, an actor that shows a lot of emotion on his face. But he's a really good physical actor. He, he does a lot of his acting through his body movement, the way he carries himself. Um, which, again, it's that kind of stage training. People in the back row need to see your mental state because they can't really see your face very well. Uh, and you see a ton of that through all of this. Um, like just the way he's walking through his house when the water's not turning on, the power's not turning on, his confusion and uh, 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 disorientation comes through in the way he's walking around the house. He'll like, take a few steps, turn around, walk back the way he came and turn around and walk the way he was going a minute ago, kind of pacing back and forth. Like he's trying to find something uh, uh, really comes across on the screen. And then to have a really relatively exciting action scene on that boat, which was basically just a corridor and two rooms and there was cramps yeah. to begin with. Uh, and they have a really engaging, compelling fight scene on that space. Again, partially because all of the actors, but particularly McGowan is very confident in uh, making that physicality work uh, because regardless of whether he's Drake or not, the point is McGowan has had at that point, nearly a decade of experience playing an action hero. And so he really knows how to make this stuff work well in an interesting way that works visually. Um, uh, and uh, you mentioned watching the Danger Man episodes. They are very much the opposite of that. There's lots of narration. There's lots of talking. Because, uh, again, it's early BBC. They know how to get well, people into a room and talk. Also, Patrick McGowan made a distinctive choice about that character. He wanted him to be the anti-Bond. So right. that's why he doesn't use a gun and it's more words and everything else. And I think a lot of that lack of using of a gun helps reinforce, as you're saying, like the, the near decade of doing actiony stuff as a more physical person. And the stage training, uh, one of the interesting bits I do know is that Orson Welles said that Patrick McGowan could have been the greatest actor of their generation if he could get off television. Wow. And I believe it, honestly. I mean, there's... Uh, particularly when you look at something like uh, The Prisoner, I mean, it's a, a bit like Lost, again, in the sense that someone who made it in a particular industry was given just gobs of money to try to make television. And while it's not always credited, we know that he not only was the lead actor, um, he was the producer, he was the, lead, the script editor, um, he directed several episodes, uh, usually by firing the director and directing it himself. Uh, so every step of Under this... Pseudonym. Yeah. Um, there is one episode, I think it was Chimes of Big Ben that was written by Patty Fitz, which is him. Um, <laughs> but uh, not even subtle pseudonym. Uh, but um, when you have this kind of auteur-driven thing where he's in every piece of it, uh, uh, it's obviously very stressful, and that led to some of the production difficulties, but you also realize that he's thinking about every aspect of this. You know, 
most lead actors would not be confident to do an episode where they barely talk. And really there's lots of scenes where six barely talks. Uh, there's lots of scenes where he's just kind of in the room while other characters are talking and most leads would be uncomfortable with that dynamic, but because he had so much control over the show, he could, it was, it was very easy for him to kind of not do that. And this is a really good episode where it's all about number six, but number six is not jamming in your face. How important he is. The, the, the whole show is doing that for him. And so he can take a more uh, restrained approach to the episode and especially for a show where ultimately, at least for the first kind of handful of episodes, his ultimate goal is he has to fail. And that's not a structure most people were familiar with at the time. He, he, for the show to continue, he has to continually fail to escape. So he has to get his success in other ways, which are kind of very pyrrhic victories. And so to have an actor who's willing to show that kind of vulnerability for a character that's written to be an action hero is fantastic. Um, and Many Happy Returns is a really good example of something that on the page would have just been an action hero doing action hero things. But at every moment, McEwen's thinking about how can I undercut number six? How can I make him vulnerable without it making it obvious that he's vulnerable? And it wasn't that when you first watch it, it's just kind of a, a neat little psychological thing. But on repeated watchings, you start to see, I actually kind of know what number six is thinking right now, even though he's not speaking a word. And that's amazing. And to your point about failure, though, if you when you watch the whole series, you'll see that any episode where number six is trying to escape, he fails. Right. And like the island always wins. Any episode where the island is trying to extract why he resigned from number six, <laughs> they always fail and he wins. So that is right. a great balance that keeps the show going. But it shows that like both of them are winning and losing in conjunction. And there are times where they sort of come out evenly. I want to say exactly. there's one episode where number two has like this big machine that's going to do all this stuff and to stop him number six stops him but number six stops him at the cost of like the only friend on the island he made dies so like that is a win and a loss altogether which sort of I'm not going to say they equal themselves out but it shows that constant dynamic of what's going on right and and, and that's what i think makes the show so compelling at least in the early stages um uh, it, it's the who's actually winning who's who is the prisoner? And that's something that the show starts to uh, uh, obliquely and then later on uh, directly address is that number two is in various ways just as much a prisoner as number six is. And that's almost, I think, stated in the first episode. Like he asked him something about that and he makes a comment about, well, we've all got to do our job. Oh, you're right. You're right. And, yeah, number two said, we, we're all prisoners here. You're right. That's a good point. And, but for this episode, the chemistry between, uh, I think her name was Georgiana Cook and Patrick McGowan in his old apartment is astounding. Like that is, I think the sexiest this show will get throughout the entire run of it. And again, she's an older actress, not a traditionally young, pretty actress. Um, and you're right. The sexual tension is actually pretty high. Uh, the show, I mean, it's, it's British casting in the sixties. So, you know, diversity is what it is for the moment, but the, the age diversity is actually really strong in this show. There are lots of women who are not classically attractive, um, and uh, there's lots of care women have stronger roles in general than they would have had in equivalent spy fiction in the '60s. So yeah, I mean, I I, I I thought that was a great choice, and she did a fantastic job. And so it also is a great breakdown. I don't you don't know if it was a voyage here, or if he's actually infatuated her. But this is one of the times where number six doesn't say no, but it's like, well, you know, how you doing? 
throughout like their little engagement. It's it's fun. And when he, tr- but the big turn though is when he tries to leave that first time, mm-hmm. and she says, "Don't go." And then if you weren't sure before what's going on, that was pretty much your tell that this is going to be number two or that she's working for the village. Right. To have him but stop. Even, but even then, like at the ends, um, when she kind of shows him the cake, unlike other episodes where he's furious, he kind of just basically kind of good game. You know, it's like, all right, you got me. He kind of just shrugs and salutes and walks off. Um, there's a respect there, which is really interesting. And again, we're seeing that Six is recognizing the patterns of the village and is trying to adapt to them, which is really cool. And I like, though, that by giving him the cake at the end, because it's his birthday. So you never know why they let Six go. I think it's because it was her birthday and it was a chance to bring him down more. <laughs> but she Happy promises him. see London for a minute. Goodbye. <laughs> well, she because he makes a comment about it being his birthday and she promises him, well, when you come back, I'll make you a cake. I may make you a cake. Yep. And oh, like so that, good. beautifully written, like unbelievably well executed in acting throughout like that entire little piece. And you get a glimpse that the village has people placed, but they don't control everything because that's why you have an actual officer come to the house to question her after six talks to his super superiors. Yeah. Because if they had controlled everything, we wouldn't have had that scene. It would have just been like that happening. Instead, you have people investigating like the people that were out uh, camping. Mm -hmm. They have someone questioning her and they have to replace the pilot of the plane to get him back. And so part of it is her allowing him to shower and do all these other things lets them have time to put things into place. It's so good. And you even in the episode not knowing where the island is because since they have the pilot, you don't know if the pilot went where they were supposed to have gone. So you're still left with no more knowledge than you had before, other than the village is powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, there, uh, uh, there's even little bits like, um, again, like where if you look at it on the surface, it seems like it answers the question. But if you think about it, if you overthink about it, you may end up undermining your own answer uh, because they actually do a very long bit about, Okay, you were on sea for this long. Here's the information we have from you. So it's in this area. Um, so we're going to fly you over this area. And then if you see it, let us know. And so they fly him over the area and he sees it and he says, hey, that's the village. And we actually see an aerial shot of the village before the ejector seat. And so on the surface, it's like, okay, well, he, he at least he narrowed down where it could possibly be. But then you have to go the, but did the pilot go that way? You know, it, 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 you know, did the pilot actually fly to that right area? Did the pilot fly to a different area and not let him know? Because um, there's one point where Six, you know, looks like he's distracted. The pilot says, you okay? It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm just, you know, let's just do this. And it's a throwaway line, but there's a lot of weight you could put on that. of Like maybe he was briefly drugged um, or distracted and disoriented. This clearly was kind of not paying full attention. And that leaves a wide gap of, okay, maybe this isn't the area he thought he was in. Uh, so it's, it's doing a lot with a very economic uh, dialogue and script, which very much feels like modern prestige television in so many ways. Yeah. Uh, any last comments on many happy returns? Uh, it's a fantastic episode. I'm glad we watched it. <laughs> so, it was hard to figure out which of these 
episodes to watch. Initially, we were going to do four episodes. Mm. And then Eddie brought up a point. He brought like another episode that I wasn't thinking about. I was like, well, that's a good episode. <laughs> so instead, we've decided to break the prisoner into two different shows. Ah. The, the first one that we just did today covers episodes one through nine. And the next one's going to cover episodes 10 through 17. Yeah, and specifically, uh, we're going to watch um, uh, Living in Harmony, uh, specifically because it's a Wild West episode. Now, I, I, I'm a, I love Chris. So I want to make sure he has a chance to in, indulge in that, the British version of, of American Westerns. Uh, and then uh, the, the kind of two-part finale, which is Once Upon a Time and Fallout, where questions will be ignored and answers will be given that have nothing to do with the questions that are being ignored. <laughs> so... If folks have liked this, um, let us know. If you want us to do a Danger Man retrospective, let us know. Danger Man, if we did, it would just be like, well, I don't know, actually. It would have to be at least two episodes because the first season is so drastically different than the second season, just in yeah. format alone. Because first season, I'm now going to talk 20 minutes about Danger Man. Um, <laughs> the first season of Danger Man was about 25-minute episodes compared to second season that around 50-minute episodes. Yep. So think of now. Yeah, we, we, honestly, I think we could do a couple of episodes of each of Danger Man because um, I've been watching it just, you know, initially I was just for re- resources and then I throw it on TV while I'm doing other stuff. It's like, it's a nice kind of background, inoffensive spy show um, that tries really hard to be the Avengers and just isn't. But I, I still enjoy it. <laughs> do I get I get a sense we may have to do a 50 season? Can <laughs> you take 50 television? Wow. Yeah, there's, there's something we look at, definitely. Um, uh, uh, there's a Sherlock Holmes show in the 50s that's really interesting that we can talk about. Yeah. So um, uh, we would have to definitely put a disclaimer, which we didn't put a disclaimer on The Prisoner, but it was made in the 60s in Britain. So if if you needed me to say it, I could, but <laughs> I didn't. Right. Uh, um, recognize that it was the 60s. And, and, and to be fair, The Prisoner generally avoided a lot of, of bad tropes and you miss all of them but like you mentioned the the the, the campers as it were um they could have said the g word several times well, there and they just didn't <laughs> thank you i that was a point i wanted to bring up you do have his official using a slur word to describe them and you have number six correcting him right in the show yeah, so like that is mm-hmm. that is a nod to at least the show trying to be somewhat progressive for the 60s so yeah. like it's right there yeah yeah so i mean yes it's, it's 60s television take that for what you will but it is a show that's definitely trying and hits more than it misses for which is fantastic yeah. better than a lot of modern shows um uh, yeah, fucking a man <laughs> since we'll be back next time with more of the prisoner uh where can people find you online in the world uh you international mystery <laughs> traveler you uh, at the time you're listening to this, hopefully I will be living in the UK. So, uh, but contact me should be the same. Uh, you can find me at Pugsteady, my website, which is P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y.com. Um, that's also my Twitter handle. Uh, and uh, doing some math in my head real quick. Uh, I believe my Kickstarter is still going on. Um, so Realms of Pugmire, if you are excited about uh, fantasy games involving dogs in the far future, um, check out realmsofpugmire.com. Uh, if you're looking for me, you can find me still on Twitter at dark underscore Hugh. You could go to my website. I myself go there occasionally, but I'm mostly in the darker Hugh discords talking to myself because Eddie's traveling and no one else seems to answer what I talk about. Total randomness. Like so alone. Most, most recent tweet that I dropped of uh, Nick Fury 
by Stranko. Oh, Stranko is so good. Maybe we should so do that next time folks, for Speechless. <laughs> I was going to put that out there. If folks want us to do like the Nick Fury run uh, after hearing our last run on Iron Man, let us know. Yeah. But otherwise, we will catch you all next week to talk more about The Prisoner. Be seeing you.